and quite appropriately at the end of our Bibles. Finally, we have spent nine weeks getting ourselves ready. It's all been an introduction. It's all been prep for us to finally walk through Revelation 21 and a little portion of 22, which, say, why couldn't we have just jumped right into that? Well, it requires an understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. It requires an understanding of the themes of temple and kingdom. You got to know um, or have a basic awareness of Old Testament, um, the, the Old Testament prophetic hope. And of course, a firm grasp on the promise of resurrection and how that is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Not that the cross isn't incredibly important. It is so important. But if I had to pick one thing that is central to being a Christian, it is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the central tenet of what it means to be uh, a believer in that his resurrection guarantees our own resurrection and the resurrection of all things. So finally, after all of that, we have arrived at the ultimate heaven passage in the Bible Revelation 21 and 22. Now, a couple of things before we get started. The first thing I want to do is I want to remind you where Revelation 21 and 22 is on the the overall timeline. So if you'll return to page 10 of your heaven workbook, it looks like this. You got the two different perspectives. So page 10. And I want to look at that biblical view, which hopefully by now, um, I presented enough evidence that you're, you're at least willing to say, okay, I, I can see why she calls that the biblical view. Um, but let's take a look at that biblical view timeline just so we can, can gauge where Revelation 21 sits on that timeline. So we have the present age that we are living in right now. So we are actually, according to the New Testament, we are experiencing eternal life in the present age right now as believers. So life of the age to come in, in, in a part, in some way, is ours right now, all right? So this, this reality in this present age is embodied, and it is here on earth, all right? Now, upon physical death, we go into the part of the, um, the timeline that is life after death. Now, for you and I, this is the part we care the most about. We have the most questions about. We are the most concerned. It's what your kids are asking questions. What all of us are thinking about um, Interestingly enough, it is not what the biblical authors are all that concerned about. They don't write a lot about the immediate state after death. Now, I don't want to downplay what they write about it because what they write about it is very, very, very comforting. All right? So what they tell us again and again is that a believer who has died is with Christ with Christ. Is it embodied? Is it not? We don't know. Uh, What is it like? What does it smell like? What does it look like? What is it? We don't know. We are not given details about life after death, but we are given this one detail that is so beautiful and so profound and so marvelous and so comforting is that we are with Christ. We experience a big Jesus hug immediately after, upon upon death. We're with him. We're with him. Um, in case you weren't here the first week, there is a typo. Revelation should be 6-9. So those are the three, verse, th- the three passages there that talk about how believers are immediately, immediately with Christ 
upon physical death. Now, we can call this the present heaven. I think that's what Randy Alcorn calls it. Uh, Theologians refer to this as the intermediate state because it is not the final heaven. And it is not what the biblical authors focus most on. The biblical authors are not as concerned about life after death. They focus on life after life after death or what we would call the age to come. We might call it the future heaven, the eternal state. I often, uh, in this lesson, will refer to it as new creation. All right, and that is the far right-hand side of our little timeline. Uh, This will, um, it's already been inaugurated at the first coming resurrection ascension of Jesus, but it will be fully consummated. It will come in its full force upon the second coming of Jesus and believers experience their resurrection into the future eternal life. And this will be an embodied existence on earth as well. Revelation 21 and 22 fall on that far right block. We are today looking at life after life after death. Nobody, none of our loved ones who have passed away, who are with Jesus at this very moment, None of them have experienced yet what we're about to read about and learn about. We all get to experience that together for the first time, all right? So I have, we've all been to funerals. We talk about her loved ones. They're walking on streets of gold and and all, but actually, technically, that imagery is yet to come, all right? Streets of gold, the pearly gates, all that stuff we're going to read about, we're going to read about today. So are we clear on where this falls on the on the timeline according to the biblical view. So we're all, all believers from every generation, both those living here on this earth today and those who have already gone to be with Jesus, we are all looking and longing for what we're going to read about today. All right? So that's the first thing I wanted to say is we got to position ourselves in the right place as we read this passage. Nobody right now is experiencing Revelation 21 and 22. Still future, okay? All right. So you can put your little thing away here. Second thing I want to talk a little bit about before we dig in is the genre, the literary genre of the book of Revelation. It is Jewish apocalyptic literature. Now, this type of literature is super strange to us. Nobody writes this way anymore. Um, But one thing I didn't realize is that it was incredibly common in the Second Temple period. John, Daniel, the, the apocalyptic stuff we have in our Bibles is not unique in the time that it was written. Um, a few other things that uh, would fall under this category. Um, there are prominent literary apocalypses that include First Enoch, Second and Third Barak, Fourth Ezra, the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Apocalypse of Peter. These did not make the the uh, biblical canon; they're not officially scripture, but they are apocalyptic literature that was very well known and circulated in the Second Temple period. So it's very unique to us. It was actually very common um, to the original audience. Now, all, all. Jewish apocalyptic communicates the message through heavy 
intense use of imagery in word pictures. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know if you have ever tried to read through the book of Revelation, right? Heavy, intense use of imagery and word pictures. And this poses a really, really big problem for modern interpreters. And to help you understand the challenge this poses, I want you to think about something in our day that relies on heavy, intense use of imagery, and that would be political cartoons. All right, this is not a perfect illustration, but I think it will drive home um, and it, what, what, what I have in mind here. And I stole this right straight out of Tim Mackey, a Tim Mackey sermon on Revelation 21. Um, I have almost no original thoughts. So if you're ever like, that's so good, April probably got it from Tim Mackey or Tim Keller or, or somebody like that's really good at this. Um, so anyway, I have a couple political cartoons on your listening guide. I did not want to devote much time. They are not the best political cartoons, but I, I you know, they, they make the point. Um, now, if you are a, an American citizen who stays up on news headlines, right? Like you, you, you watch the news, you read, the, well, does anybody read the newspaper? anymore? The news, newspaper on your tablet? I don't know. Whatever people do now. Um, but if you stay up on news headlines, you, you probably don't need a whole lot of explanation. You, you can look at these pictures and you can kind of be like, oh yeah, I get it, right? Now imagine that someone time traveled here from an ancient culture. And we took these cartoons and we placed these cartoons in front of them. Would anything about these pictures make any sense at all? Not a darn thing. Nothing at all. They would look at this, why? Okay, first of all, why is the donkey sitting upright? Why is he wearing a suit? What is the significance of that? Donkeys don't wear suits. And then he's looking at a, we know it's a coffee can. We know Cup of Joe is a coffee reference. They might not even be from a culture that has coffee. They have, it's completely, completely lost. That phrase, best if used by, we're like, that's an expiration date. His time is limited, right? Um, but our ancient time travel friend doesn't have a clue what an expiration date is. Nothing about that image makes any sense. And the cartoon on the right requires not just an understanding of American politics, but you kind of got to be a little aware of what's going on in Venezuela as well. And, and some foreign policy stuff, right? You would also have to have some awareness of the scandals that are associated with Trump's administration to understand what's going on in that cartoon. So while these are silly looking cartoons, they're actually really complex forms of communication, aren't they? Like you don't even realize it, but when you look at them, your brain is doing so much. It is bringing together a whole bunch of concepts and ideas and categories that you have acquired over years of just living in America and reading news articles and hearing news stories, right? You just, all this stuff is coming together and your brain's able to synthesize it and it's communicating a message that at least in the mind of the artist corresponds to reality. And I want to suggest to you that the same thing is happening or needs to happen with reading Jewish apocalyptic literature, except we are the time travelers. 
We are the time travelers. We are going back. When we read the book of Revelation, we are going back to a culture and a time about which we have very limited knowledge. And John assumes, the biblical author set a really high bar. Like, we're really careful on Sunday morning here. You don't want to say anything that's too complicated. You don't want to say anything that's too to this, I was um, involved in writing something for a Sunday morning, and I mentioned Adam and Eve, and they're like, can't mention Adam and Eve, nobody knows who Adam and Eve is. And I was like, I'm out, man. <laughs> you got the wrong girl. <laughs> but that's kind of how we function, right? We want to be really accommodating to people who don't know all the stuff we know, and that's a good thing. Biblical authors do not do that. They set a high bar, and they assume you know stuff. And they're, they're hyperlinking to this and to that all over the place all over the place. So John assumes that his readers have been deeply immersed in the Hebrew scriptures and, and not just the scriptures, but that they also have been deeply immersed in the world of first century Roman Israeli politics. Raise your hand if you've done an in-depth verse-by-verse study of Ezekiel and can articulate all the different visions that guy has. Me neither, you guys. Don't ever want to do that one, right? Raise your hand if you can quote lengthy passages from the book of Isaiah and have a robust understanding of what they mean. Nope. I taught the book of Isaiah and I still can't do that. Well, John assumes we can. While there aren't a whole lot of direct quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, nearly every single verse alludes to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and so much of the conflicts, the battles that are portrayed in the book of Revelation are deeply integrated with real, live, actual, political conflicts that were taking place in ancient Rome at the time which is why (laughs) there is so much garbage written about the book of Revelation. Because studying this book of the Bible demands a lot. It demands a lot of time, it demands a lot of mental energy, and it demands a lot of humility. You cannot be a typical American performing your cultural snobbery, reading all your stuff from your day into the book of Revelation, you will mess it up so bad. You will sell a lot of books. You will fill a lot of conference rooms. You will make a lot of money, but you will not be a faithful interpreter of the message that God is communicating through his word. People have got to earn the right to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. You gotta earn the right to stand and, and, and present a conference message on what's going on in the book of Revelation. And we need to do our homework and we need to look at people's backgrounds. And you know who I wanna hear from? I wanna hear from the old guy who's just lived a quiet life, maybe at a seminary. He spent years and years and years studying. He's devoted his entire life to the text of Revelation And unless you're a Bible nerd, you never heard his name, and he's not making any money on it. He's just being faithful, a faithful scholar, loves Jesus, and he's just spent years and years. That's that's whose commentary I'm reading, right? 
And we need to get better at vetting the scholars and the teachers that we allow to teach, especially when it comes to apocalyptic literature. It's just, it's its own beast. It's so hard. It takes so much work. And, um, you know, little Joe Schmo, who's super cool, who's a good writer, who can, like, make us feel like the COVID vaccine's the mark of the beast. That's dumb. That's ridiculous. That is junk. If there's anything you learn from this, don't click on that garbage. Don't even give it a click. I'm not upset about this at all, you guys. All right. With that in mind, with that in mind, let's cautiously and humbly work through what I believe is one of the most gorgeous, hope-fueling passages in the entire Bible. And thankfully, Revelation 21 and 22, on the scale of chapters that are really, really, really hard to interpret in the book of Revelation, it is, it's definitely not the hardest. It's on the easier side, if there's such a thing, right? So I think we can handle this one, all right? I think we can do it. Okay, so I'm going to divide this passage into four parts. First, we're going to look at the vision, the direction, the result, and the fulfillment, all right, so first the vision, and I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage so we can kind of get the lay of the land, and then I'll be jumping around a little bit as we, as we fill it out. All right, so Revelation chapter 21, excuse me, I'm going to start in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief Crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. City wall had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. 
The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. It's a cube. That he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Lots of little clues we shouldn't take all this literally. Gold isn't clear, right? The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, you guys get it, the eleventh chastened, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. That's a big old pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, which again for us is not so crazy, but he just called it the New Jerusalem. And there's no temple? What? I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse The throne of God and the Lamb will be in this city, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they, the people, will reign forever and ever. And this is the word of the Lord. And what a good word. It is. Well, first, let's take a look at the vision. There's actually three different word pictures that get filled out in this passage. So the first word picture that we're given is that of a new heaven and a new earth. We get that in verse 1. And by now, we should, you know, have a little ding, ding, ding. These are hyper, he's hyperlinking. He's actually hyperlinking through this whole passage. But he's hyperlinking first back to Genesis 1 where we have the first creation of a heaven and earth, but also hyperlinking back to Isaiah 65, where Isaiah specifically uses the words new heaven and new earth. So that's the first uh, word picture, new heaven and a new earth. The second word picture that, that he fills out is that of a new Jerusalem, which is called the holy city. And of course, the, the, the word picture of a new Jerusalem calls to mind the Davidic dynasty. That's where the throne of David was, Jerusalem. It also calls to mind Solomon's temple, right? So the, the tabernacle that traveled around with Israel was replaced by the permanent temple structure, and it was there in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to 
listen, I'm going to do some lots of cross-referencing. You can just hang tight and listen. If you want to go with me, you can. I'm going to be turning to Isaiah uh, chapter 65 because we see um, a clear connection here. So Isaiah chapter 65, I'm going to pick up in verse 17. says, For I will create new heavens and a new earth, for the past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. Here's the parallelism, Hebrew poetry. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Right, so there in Isaiah's prophecy, you have this connection between the new heaven and the new earth and this new Jerusalem, right, that he will rejoice over. That's going to be the source of great gladness. He says, the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. All right, so we got a new heaven and a new earth. Second word picture is the new Jerusalem, the holy city. And there's one more word picture in John's vision of the eternal state, and that is the bride, the wife of the lamb. Let me reread verse two of Revelation 21. He said, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And there, look at this imagery. Prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Now skip down to verse nine. Um, Let's see, it says, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a city, (laughs) right? So he's got these, these different metaphors that he's using, the bride and the city are parallel, parallel in the vision. And this too comes straight out of Isaiah, Isaiah 62. Let's see, I should have just stuck my finger in Isaiah. Two places you need to have on tap when you're reading the book of Revelation, Isaiah and Ezekiel. He goes there a lot. All right, so Isaiah 62. These are beautiful, beautiful verses. Verse Uh, Isaiah 62, 1 says, I will not keep silent because of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, and I will not keep still because of Jerusalem until her righteousness shines like the bright light and her salvation like a flaming torch. Nations will see your righteousness, all kings your glory. You will be given a new name that the Lord's mouth will announce. You will be given a glorious crown in the Lord's hands and a royal diadem in the palm of your God's hands. And this is so beautiful, this language. You will no longer be called deserted, and your land will not be called desolate. Instead, you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land will be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. So he's heavily pulling from that marriage imagery in Isaiah. All right, so we have three word pictures, all right? And, and our temptation is to ask questions like, well, where in the new heaven and the new earth is the new Jerusalem located? Like, can you show me on a map, like, what's the relationship? And that would be thinking like a modern person, Ancient writers mixed metaphors. They mix metaphors. These are three different ways of looking at the age to come. 
And so I would exhort you not to waste any energy trying to map them onto each other. (laughs) Just let them stand. Let them stand as they are in the text. Gather the information you're given about each individual metaphor and go from there. This is not a literal rendering of heaven. He's not drawing us a map. He's not even drawing us a picture. These are words. They're word pictures. And when you're using words, you can go from a new earth to a city to a bride. Like, if you were to draw that, it'd look weird. How do you draw a city that looks like a bride? That's weird. But see, he's not painting it. He's he's writing it. That's the power of, of words. You can do that. And that's what he's doing there. So that's the, the general vision. We've got three metaphors working that he's working in this, in this passage. Let's take a look at the direction. Now, the traditional view of heaven is that we, believers, escape this world and go up, right? I grew up with an upward view of heaven, and probably most of you did as well. Now, I will say, if this was a, a group of Presbyterian women, they would not necessarily have grown up with that, that view, okay? So this is not all denominations, ha- you know, we all have our different influences and things, but from, from, from my, my particular Christian subculture, it's always been up. I pray the beam me up, Scotty, prayer, right? But take a look how, at how John describes things here. Again, going back to 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and where, what's it doing? It is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for a husband. Look at verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, and this, he, de- he declares this is an announcement. Look. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples. Now, the language we would traditionally use is humanity is gonna be with God and we will be with him. But you see the direction is, 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 is reversed here. We see it again. In verse 9, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. What is that city doing? It's coming down out of heaven from God arrayed with God's glory. And of course, this is consistent with everything we've examined this day. I have been asked you annoying amount of questions about what is the direction, what is the direction, what is the direction, right? The biblical view is not that we escape this world and go up, but that God remakes this world and comes down. And once you reorient yourself to the proper direction of God's interaction with his creation, the meta narrative of scripture really starts to come alive. Now it makes sense why we use the up language. Because from the biblical um, cosmology, God is up there. That's how, that's how the ancients describe where God lives. That's how we describe, that's the language of the Bible described. God lives above what we can see and what we can know. He is transcendent above it all. So the up language is not like a bunch of idiots came up with that. No, that makes sense. If we want to be with God, we got to go up. That's just not the direction that we get as we read through the Bible, 
All right, so I'm not saying it's stupid. It's not stupid. It's just not an accurate way to speak of what the Bible is communicating about the final age, the age to come. The direction is God coming here. There's a Michael Bird, one of my favorite scholars. There's a quote on the very first page of your study. It's that beautiful, beautiful picture. It's like the purple, the purple gardening boots. I love that image, you guys. But I also love the quote that's on it. It says, though God made heaven and earth, he intended to remake both and join them together forever. I would go so far as to say that the chief promise of the gospel is not that we go to heaven when we die, but that heaven comes to earth, transforming the world, renewing the earth, and remaking the cosmos. And that's a big, beautiful story right there. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of heaven coming here. Heaven coming here. So that's the direction. Well, I have on my notes, we're spending the bulk of our time talking about the result, and we are, but I'm looking at our time, and I'm, all right, I'm going to go a little late today. Y'all aren't going to get out late, but I'm going to go late. Um, Let's look at the result of heaven coming here, because this is the exciting stuff. This is what's going to, like, thrill our hearts and encourage us today. And I specifically want to focus on, first, what is going to be missing in the new creation? Like, what's not going to be Something that's here now, but it's not going to be in in the new heaven and the new earth. And then we're going to look at what is present. What is present in in the new creation. So let's talk first about what will be missing. And all I did this week, I just went through the passage and I just pulled out stuff, right? First thing you see as you're reading through the passage is that one thing that's going to be missing is the first heaven and first earth. We are told that it will pass away. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind about what's being communicated here. First, our prototype of the old passing away and new creation replacing it is Jesus. That's the only prototype we actually have. It's the only prototype. And, and so we got to think, okay, well, what happened to Jesus? He really, truly died. And his body was really, truly transformed. We could say with complete accuracy that the old body of Jesus passed away and the new glorified body of Jesus rose on the third day. Accurate statements. The old was gone, the old passed away, and the new, the new rose. Now, when we say that, it doesn't mean that there was total annihilation of the old body. And it doesn't mean that there was no continuity between the old body and the new body of Jesus. In fact, the eyewitness accounts reveal that there was quite a bit of continuity between the old and the new. And so as I've dug into this and I've really studied and there's a lot written about, what does it exactly mean that the the old earth passes away? And how is that consistent with what we saw in Romans 8, where there's this resurrection and there's this renewal of creation? Like, how do we reconcile those two. And, and what scholars are, are saying over and over is that we should see the relationship between the old creation and the new creation through the lens of what happened to Jesus. And John's word choice confirms this. John, who's the human author of Revelation, there are two common words for new in the Greek. I'm about to nerd out on you, but I think this is an important little nugget. I try not to do too much Greek words because We've got great English translations. We don't often need that. But here it's really helpful. 
Um, so one word for new in the Greek is neos. N-E-O-S is the transliteration into English. And it means new in time or origin. It means young. Something is neos if it hasn't existed for very long. It's new. Kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S, is another Greek word for new. But it means what's new in nature. It means new in a sense of being different from the usual or being superior in value or attraction. What word do you think John uses? New as in young for new heaven and new earth or new as in superior in value for new heaven and new earth? The second one, yeah, kainos. So the new world is not new in that God creates it ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's not new in that it just came into existence. That every tree, like, it's a brand new tree. You know, not, not, it's it's not, the, not new in time, new in quality. Someone comes to Jesus, they say, I got a whole new life. I got a whole new life. It's not that this life didn't exist. It's new and it's so far superior. I still got the same husband and I still got the same kids. I still live in the same house, but it's new. I got new, new in quality. That's the word. That's, that's how that word is used. So it's new in the sense of being transformed into something far superior. It's that, it's that acorn to oak tree relationship we talked about. That's, that's, that's another image that we can have in our minds. In other words, what happened on Easter morning to Jesus will happen to the whole world and every believer. Just so exciting. So exciting. All right, so that's the first thing that we'll be missing. The old, the the earth as it is under sin, broken, fallen, cursed. That's going to pass away. And something far superior is going to take its place because God's going to transform the whole thing, right? Another thing that's going to be missing, according to verse 1, is the sea. Now, how many of you in the room are ocean lovers? Raise your hand. Me too. And so you read this, and it's extremely heartbreaking, right? Well, I have good news. Good news. Uh, I have not come across a single reputable scholar who suggests that we should take this literally. Uh, if you turn to, if we were to, to, go ahead and turn there. You, this is an easy one to turn to. It's the first verse in the Bible. Genesis 1, 1. Very first words of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. He's going to describe the state prior to creation. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We talked about in an ancient mindset, this is a story of how God brought things from chaos to order. And what in this story represents utter chaos and disorder and uninhabitable life? It's the deep waters of the sea. It's, it's the waters. Um, and, and we see this reflected throughout scripture. Isaiah 57, 20 says, the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea. Psalm 60, uh, 46, 2 and 3 says, Therefore do not be afraid, though the earth trembles, though the mountains topple into the depths of the seas. We have the seas swallowing up mountains. Scary. 
You have the sea roaring and foaming. You have, you have verses about sea monsters and the Leviathan, and you have all of this, this stuff. So again and again throughout Scripture, the sea stands for that which is chaotic and deadly. This is why. That, Jesus walking on water, you guys? There's a lot more to that than you just, just meets the eye. He's Lord over the chaos waters, right? If you take a look at ancient Israelite history, you'll notice they were never a seafaring people. They let other nations take to the high seas and do all the sea stuff. They were land people. And this is why. So we're missing the point if we're wondering if there will be beaches in heaven. When John says the sea was no more, he's saying that which is most threatening and dangerous is no more. For us, that's not the sea. We like go to the aquarium. We love the sea, right? We go on cruises. We're like out in the middle of nowhere on a boat, and we're like saving our money for this, right? So we don't think of the sea the way they did. We might think of uh, nuclear weapons, as being one of the most dangerous things, or cybersecurity threats, or national disasters. Every people in every generation has had their things that represent large-scale disorder and death and chaos. And whatever that thing is, it's not going to be in the new creation. That's what's being communicated here. Praise God. <laughs> Amen. Now, our favorite list of things that won't be in the new creation appears in verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. I love that image. He could just say, there's no more tears. But there's this picture of God, like, if you wipe a tear from someone's eye, you are so close. It's such an intimate thing. He will wipe Away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. My favorite verse on heaven in the whole Bible. In my opinion, aside from Scripture, the words that most beautifully express the cosmic renewal promised in Scripture are contained in the chapters right after the final battle and the return of the king which is the last book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. One of my favorite parts is when, after the ring is finally destroyed in Mount Doom, and there is so much drama leading up to that. Sam, the best character in any book ever of all time, don't fight me on that. <laughs> Sam wakes up from his sleep, totally surprised he is alive, and shocked to see Gandalf. And then he says this, he asks this question, is everything sad going to come untrue? Oh yes, Sam, everything sad is going to come untrue. And this is where I've started to, you know, I talk to my kids about heaven. Um, they know that there's a a present heaven, we're with Jesus, but that we're all awaiting this future world. And I call it the no tears place, the no cancer place, the no death place, the no war place, the no sickness place, the no 
feelings get hurt place, the no loneliness place. Like all of these things that just break our hearts that we don't have control over. All the sad things are going to come untrue. It's such beautiful, beautiful hope we have there. Moving on to verse 8. It says, but the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, we would certainly be worth our time to look at each of those individual things and what is being communicated there, but we don't have the time, and this is a study on heaven, so I have very intentionally left out hell. That's a whole different study. Um, I don't know if I've joked here or Wednesday night, like what would our graphics in our workbook look like if we did a study on hell, right? Like the garden theme wouldn't really fly. I don't know, maybe a bunch of dead plants, which I could just walk around my house and take pictures. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, But what we see here is another thing that will be missing in the new creation are people whose hearts are bent toward idols, who who refuse to, to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. Skip down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, this is probably the most shocking thing in this passage for the original audience. And we've already traced the temple theme, so I'm not going to spend much time here other than to say that the picture John paints for us is the in of the entire new creation being a temple of God. That's why there's no structure. There's no temple building because the whole thing is a temple, right? Just like the garden was back in Genesis 1 and 2. One of my favorite little details in the passages in verse 16, when he's given these measurements, which there's no indication we ought to be taking those measurements uh, literally. They all have a really, and we don't have time to get into it, but it's really fun if you want to chase the numerology down. Um, But he he gives us this measurement of the new creation as being a cube. And there is one other cubic structure in the Bible, and it's the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And a reference for that would be 1 Kings 6, 19 through 20. And there is hardly a chance that this is a coincidence. Given the intense temple imagery, the emphasis on God's unmediated presence throughout this passage, the implication seems to be that the entire vision of the new creation is of one giant holy of holies. Which, whoo, that is, wow. Look at verse 23. So there's no temple. Verse 23 says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. Now, I got to tell you, I've been looking forward to some new creation sunrises and sunsets because I love sunrises and sunsets more than I love just about anything else in all of the created world. I think just like the sea, just like with the sea, the point is not that there's not going to be a sun or there's not going to be a moon. The point 
is that the brilliance of God's glory is gonna be so far beyond anything we've ever experienced that we'll no longer think of any other light sources as necessary. They're there, they're there. The sun will be there to look pretty. You can kind of think of the sun just, it's a little accessory. Right now, if the sun moves, we're in big trouble, you guys. We're in big trouble. It is like sustaining everything. I think the point is, no, no, no. The the glory of God will be the sustaining light and heat of the new world. And that sun is just something pretty to look at. That moon is something pretty to look at. I don't really need it. It's just there, it's just pretty. Because the glory of God will be doing all the the life-giving and the life-sustaining work. We're also told that night will be no more. Again, this is likely not a statement about literal night, but about uh, darkness and what darkness represents. I don't know if you had a similar experience. Hurricane Ian came through a few weeks ago. My neighborhood lost power. Like the whole little area lost power for a few days. And um, I remember taking the dog out and thinking, oh my word, it is dark, like dark, dark. Like no lights, no street lamps, no porch lights, no lights coming from anybody's houses, just the creepy hum of generators. I was like, this is creepy. This is creepy. When the sun went down, that was that. Couldn't see much of anything, right? We don't know much of true darkness in our little suburban environments, right? Night is not really a big deal. You can turn a bunch of lights on. They even do road work at night. Got these huge lights, right? That's right, you can't even see, sorry. You go to a national park and you look up and you're like, dang, I didn't know that was there, right? You're like, I've never seen that before. The darkness, the darkness of night without modern electricity is a powerful symbol of, of fear and the unknown and evil and all the things. And the age to come, what Isaiah is really pulling to, and I don't have time to read it, but, but Isaiah 60 one through three, where it says the light will, will, will shine. <laughs> the light will shine. Isaiah is the, the, the dude that, that loved light metaphors, right? And so here's the point of no sun, no moon, no night. And this is straight from Gregory Beale's commentary. Nothing from the old world will be able to hinder God's glorious presence from completely filling the news cosmos or the saints from unceasing access to that divine presence. The last thing that won't be in the new creation is in chapter 22, verse 3. And there will no longer be any curse. He just throws that out there like it's not a big deal or something. Yeah, there's not going to be any curse. Man, that's a huge deal. The consequences of humanity's rebellion against God laid out in Genesis chapter 3, right? The rupture between the, relation, the, the relationship between humans and God, between humans and creation, between humans and each other, and all the horrendous side effects that that rupture has caused in this world will be fully healed and restored. That's an amazing truth to, to just, again, just go home and keep chewing on that. Could do a whole lesson just on that. All right, so we've covered what we'll be missing. Let's take a, 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 we'll be quicker here. Let's take a look at what will be present. Now, the primary emphasis of, of the whole passage is that God's presence will be present. 
that God's presence will be present among his people in a way that it has never been before. That's why there's no need for a temple. That's why there's no need for a light source. And I think the phrase that most um, stunningly represents this to us is in 22 verse 4 when it says, and they will see his face. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament scriptures at all, you know that, that in, the old, in, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, such, that kind of revelation of God's face would kill a person. It would kill a person. And you know, the second part of that verse is they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Again, John is hyperlinking back to the Old Testament. Exodus 28, 36 through 38, God's name was placed on the high priest's forehead. On his turban, there was a sign that said, holy to Yahweh. And in the age to come, the privilege of being consecrated to be acceptable in the immediate presence of God, to see his face is now granted to all of God's people, not just the high priest. We will all have holy to the Lord written on our foreheads and be able to experience God in a way that we never have before. We cannot conceive of the intimacy and communion and deep abiding fellowship we will enjoy with Father, Son, and Spirit. I've had some amazing fellowship and intimacy with the Lord in this age. Thanks to the Spirit, right, who is here and present among us. It's hard to believe it's going to get a bajillion times better. This is why marriage shows up so often in the Bible as a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people. The Bible starts with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. And the marriage it ends with is the marriage between Christ and the church. This is, this is our destiny. And if this is our destiny, this, this intimacy with Father, Son, and Spirit, how should we be preparing ourselves for it now? How are we cultivating our desire for him, readying ourselves to one day see his face? And this is where, you know, we walk around, we just assume everybody wants to go to heaven. Why would you not want to go there? There's a lot of people that aren't all that excited about intimate communion with Father, Son, and Spirit. That's like the main deal. <laughs> It's the main deal. Another thing that will be present is perfect safety and security. And there's a lot of measuring going on in this passage. And again, it's like, it's like a time traveler looking at the political cartoon. You're like, I, the measuring is a little lost on me. But as I, as I researched, what I found is that the measuring, the outlining of the city, the walls of the city, the, the parameters of the city, it's, it's, it's all about communicating safety and security. Uh, again, quoting from Gregory Beale's commentary called the Shorter Commentary on Revelation, which is like 700 pages. I don't know what the longer commentary looks like. He says, the measurements of the city wall based on Ezekiel 40 through 48 emphasize the security of the city. That is the security of God's glorified covenant community and the eternal new creation. Nothing can harm them anymore, nor can any evil threaten them. So that's what's going on. That's, that's kind of the meaning behind it. And this is significant when you think about the fact that the book of Revelation was originally written to the church under 
severe persecution. You know, we got all like the woo-woo people teaching biblical prophecy, like a bunch of weird stuff. But the point of this letter was not to freak anyone out. It was to encourage, embolden the people of God. It was to encouragement to resist the temptations to compromise under, under this persecution. It was an encouragement to persevere even through the great hardship and the suffering. What a relief to know that heaven is a place of perfect safety and security. Now, we know that of our spiritual aspect of ourself now, right? Like, people can harm our body, but they can't really harm us. And there will come a day where they can't harm either. (laughs) There's no harm, no harm that will befall God's people. No more suffering, no more persecution, just complete and total safety in the presence of God. One more thing uh, that will be present in the new creation is a multi-ethnic worshiping community. A multi-ethnic worshiping community. Look at 21.3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with not Israel, as a reader reading this, the original audience might expect. No, God's dwelling is with humanity. It's like we're going back to Genesis 1 and 2 language. Before Abraham was the called out one and his descendants were the focal point of God's uh, plan and pleasure. And No, no, it's humanity, all of humanity together. And he will live with them and they will be his peoples. And I checked, is it supposed to be people's Yes, yes, it's plural. Look how the temple structure is described. This is pretty cool, Uh, 21.12. It says, the city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. So on the gates... We've got the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the Old Testament throwback. Shout out to Israel and the physical descendants of Abraham, all right? But look a little further down at verse 14. The city wall had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. What's that a shout out to? That's a shout out to Israel expanded, which would be the church, which would be Gentile inclusion, right? The whole, the whole one people of God, which includes both Israel and the Gentile nations. Take a look at what's written about the nations in verse 24. He says, the nations will walk by its light. This is the light of God's presence. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. I'm going to quote Beale here again because he is the guy that has spent his life in the back room of the seminary (laughs) working this stuff out, all right? He says, the reason that verses 24 through 26 refer to the nations bringing glory and honor into the city is to highlight the fact that they are bringing not literal riches, but themselves as worshipers before God's end-time presence. The point of the figurative picture is that the believing Gentiles will never be separated from open, eternal access to God's presence and that nothing evil can threaten such access. 
Now, I'm pretty sure none of us woke up this morning concerned about Gentile inclusion in the redeemed people of God, right? This is a given to us, right? It's a really big deal in the Bible. It's a really big deal in the Bible. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment here in this description of new creation. Jews don't have special access to heaven. Neither do white Protestants, Revelation 5, uh, this is, you've, you've heard this a million times, but it's beautiful and it's worth repeating over and over and over until it like sinks in. Revelation 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song. You, O Lord, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased a people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people, and nation, and you made them, all of them, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. They will reign on the earth. God is building a multi-ethnic worshiping community, and if you think that sounds too woke, you need to go read your New Testament. It is all over the thing. That's what he's doing, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. All right, fulfillment. I'm taking this thing. We are landing this plane, I promise. 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. It is done. And then we have in 22, this intense Eden imagery, right? So 22, 1, you've got the river of the water of life flowing in the, the, the middle of the city's main street. And you've got the tree of life on each side of the river building, bearing fruit every month. Its leaves are for the healings of the nation. So he's, he's, he's taking us all, he's taking us back, heavy duty, heavy duty to, to Genesis 1, Genesis 2 in particular. And so what, what is done? What is done? Well, God's plan A is done. <laughs> God's plan A is done. And I have it written there for you. I'll just see if we can check, it, check these things off. Um, all right, so an earthly kingdom. Yep, yep. Uh, ruled by human imagers, 22.5, and they will reign forever and ever. Yet yeah, we got that. In a cosmic temple, pretty much every verse of the whole passage is making that point. <laughs> Where God dwells with humans, right, that is explicitly stated in 21.3, who act as priests, we all got the, the name on our foreheads, we're all given access, so we can check that off, in a special heaven and earth space, oh yeah, it's special. Heaven and earth are overlapping in a, in, in, in a way that, that, that God always intended. They're still different, they're not the same thing, but there's, there's this beautiful marriage of the two, which God expands throughout the whole world. There's no indication that he's talking about one little spot. (laughs) No, it's the whole thing, man. The whole thing's the holy of holies. The whole thing's the bride. The whole thing's the city. The whole thing's the new heaven and the new earth. This is the cosmic renewal of all things, the glory of Yahweh filling the earth as the waters fill the sea. This is God being all in all. This is the Bible's Epic, full circle moment. Every promise perfectly fulfilled by the one who is faithful and true. Always, always. About a year ago, I went to 
the eye doctor, and I got this pair of eyeglasses. And I got this pair of eyeglasses because I can barely see a thing out of my left eye. Now, my right eye is a total rock star. I can see everything right now. I shouldn't, according to my eye doctor, be doing all the work, right? Like, I can function fine without these glasses because this eye is like, it's, it's, it's keeping me going. But it's really not good that it's doing everything. And so I got these glasses, and I really like these glasses. I think they're cute. I think I look real smart in them. My husband says I look like a librarian look, which he kind of likes. Maybe that's TMI. Um, but they definitely help me see better. They help me see better. You'll know, if you looked through them, like this is like super amplified so that my left eye can get some the assistance that it needs, and they would probably generally improve my life because seeing is good, right? We want to be able to see. Here's, here's the problem, though. When I put them on, if I wear them, about five minutes in, I start to feel really nauseous and icky and just not good. I don't feel good. And so I called my eye doctor and I said, I think maybe it's a bad prescription or what's going on. He's like, no, 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 that's totally normal for people that have a profound imbalance in their, like one eye's really, really, really good, one eye's not, and you haven't had glasses. So the right eye is just like, it's working all the time. And the glasses are saying, no, 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 you need to stop working, but it doesn't want to stop working. So you're feeling all out of kilter. It's making you sick. He said, all you got to do, you got to wear them a certain amount of time every day, but you got to wear them. And it won't take that long. Eventually, you'll get through the nausea, and you'll be fine. Did a Google search to confirm that he was right, and he's right. <laughs> right? The way to stop feeling like garbage is to actually wear the glasses. And so I have tried many times. And after about 15 minutes, I'm like, nope, I'm done with this. <laughs> I don't want to feel nauseous. I don't type. I have not had a day where it was convenient to feel nauseous. Just haven't. It's not, it's not that season of life. And so I take them off, and I stick them in the case. I'm like, I'll try again tomorrow. And I've been doing this for a year. For me, the path to seeing more clearly has been very uncomfortable. And can I tell you that all these years studying the Bible, the exact same thing can be said of really deep diving into this book and approaching it, not with all my preconceived ideas, but with curiosity. We all grow up seeing things a certain way drawing certain conclusions. We're deeply shaped by whatever particular Christian subculture we grew up in. And sometimes our study of the Bible later on in life reveals that we've been wrong, which by default means facing the fact that some of our most beloved preachers and teachers and mentors have been wrong. And then we start to think, well, what else? What else have I been wrong about? And such discoveries can feel really disorienting. And it's like me putting on these glasses and you just, you, you get a little bit into it and you start to feel icky. And like the mental nausea starts to, <laughs> starts to happen. And, and, and sometimes I just want to take off the new lenses, stuff them in the drawer because it is just a heck of a lot easier to stay ignorant and maintain status quo than it is to actually learn new things. 
learning, actual learning is very hard and it's very humbling. And what I've realized about myself is I want to go to Bible studies that confirm what I already think I know. The Bible studies that confront me with things I didn't even know I didn't know. That's hard. And so you have no idea how much it means to me that for the past 10 weeks, you have kept the glasses on, even when it felt uncomfortable and when it felt disorienting. And when you had that sense of, oh, I, 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 was, I was wrong about that. Or this so-and-so person that I really love and respect is wrong about that. When you've had to grapple with, what else am I wrong about? And just the general ickiness and the disorientation that happens when we actually learn new things. I'm so, so grateful that you have stuck with it. You, you really have no idea. Because learning is so much more fun when you do it with other people. And it's been the joy of my life to learn this with you to struggle through it with you, to feel nauseous, mentally nauseous with you, <laughs> all the things. And I pray that it has been worth it. I pray this study has given you a new set of eyes to see the enormity and beauty of what God has in store for those who are his in Christ. And most of all, I pray that the truths of this study would thrill and encourage your heart toward deeper faithfulness to Jesus for years to come. This thing called the gospel is so much bigger and better than go to heaven when you die. And I hope that you've captured the biblical, the big, beautiful biblical vision of what is in store for those who are in Christ. And I love you guys so much. And this has been my favorite. And I really mean that. I say that about all of them, but like favorite, 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 favorite. All right, I'm going to close this in prayer. All right, for the last time. Father, I thank you so much for these women. Um, and I thank you. Well, I thank you for so many things, but I thank you for the promise of a no tears place, the promise of, of a no war place, the promise of a no oppression place, a promise of a no racial injustice place, a promise of a no cancer place, promise of a no hospital place. God, I thank you for this hope that we have in Christ. And God, I pray that this study would compel us to go out of this place with this beautiful vision of what is in store for your people. And that we would, that we would the best we can and, and the best we know how would be able to paint this picture of, of, of what's to come. And that it would compel others to want to be a part of this. We thank you that we are already in Christ, a new creation that this work of heaven has already begun. But there are many aspects of it that are not yet realized. And that's where the pain points are, Lord. And so strengthen us in that. Strengthen us in our weakness. Strengthen us in our sickness. Strengthen us in our broken relationships. Strengthen us where there is confusion. And strengthen us where we are just feeling like we're buried under the weight of the brokenness of our world. God, strengthen us in the already not yet. And strengthen us by reminding us of what we've studied of the hope we have in Christ. Give us eyes to see resurrection every day, every day, 
And may the living hope that we have in Jesus keep us going, standing firm, steadfast, always doing the work of the Lord because we know that that work is not in vain. And we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.